If you did that with superfluid helium, you'd see something very different. Welcome to Nerdin' About. I'm Space Michael, and with me, as always, is my co-pilot who is going on an adventure as I watch Buffy, her favorite TV show, and she is watching Star Trek TNG, my favorite TV show. How's it going, Kaylee? Oh, it's going really well. I am somewhere at the end of season three, but yeah, I've been really enjoying it. How has your Buffy experience been going? Oh, it's I'm getting through it. It's uh, really exciting. So one thing that I'm very curious about, and right from the beginning of Buffy in season one, the bronze really stood out to me. So what is the bronze? Like, it, it's not a club because they're not drinking alcohol. They're drinking like cappuccinos and there's a live band playing and they're kind of dancing the bronze is like really weird actually because it is it is sort of like a bar but there are underage kids in there and they're just drinking like sodas or waters or tea or coffee or something it's definitely not a bar that i have ever been to well i think there should be more clubs like that that have the band come on at like 5 p.m. So all of us old folk can like be in bed early. Yeah, I'm definitely one of those people who now when I just go to concerts, I'm like, mm, you know, it'd be really refreshing. Maybe don't do an encore so I can get home and go to bed sooner. And turn it down just just a tad, just a, it's a little a little less loud. Promote, don't you think they should turn it up to 11? I, I If only, yeah, we had 12, I would vote for that. And if you're wondering who's telling us both to turn it up and turn it down, that is our guest today. That's Pramod Senarathiapa. And Pramod is a PhD student at the University of Alberta, where he studies theoretical condensed matter physics. Pramod is also infamous for his win of the 2018 Dance Your PhD competition for his rendition of swing dancing electrons called Superconductivity. The musical. And if you haven't watched that already, go check it out. Do yourself a favor. Promote, thanks so much for being here today. How are you doing? Hello, hello. I am really, really well right today. Um, how are you? You know, I'm doing okay. Uh, we talked a little bit earlier. I somehow about an hour ago managed to delete an entire spreadsheet of data. <laughs> so I'm feeling a lot of emotions right now. But otherwise, I'm doing super great. And I'm really excited to be here to talk to you today about your work. But maybe let's start at the beginning. What the heck is condensed matter physics? Sure. I mean, that's a, that's a question I've gotten used to answering a lot over the last few years, because we know theoretical physics from many of the different pop references, pop culture references that we uh, consume. You know, Big Bang Theory has quite a few theoretical physicists who are of the particle kind. So everyone knows about smashing particles together and seeing what comes out. The lesser known, but the workhorse, like the, the backbone of physics, well, at least what I like to believe is the backbone of physics, is condensed matter physics, which is really looking at something that may be a little more mundane. We don't have a, a 10 kilometer ring that smashes particles together, but it looks at the physics that happens in just materials all around us. And what happens when you cool it down? What happens when you apply a lot of pressure to it? A lot of interesting stuff happens, and it happens mostly because of quantum stuff. Uh, so I study the quantum stuff of material. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Great, great, great. Just a little uh, just a little side question. What's quantum stuff? Quantum stuff. So, oh, I mean, I could go off on a whole tangent about this historical aspect of quantum stuff. Essentially, if you want like a SparkNotes version, it started in the 1900s. People noticed that 
when they studied things that were really, really small, it didn't really fit into, you know, the conceptions of physics at that time of, you know, being able to measure things and get precise results out. So as they measured stuff like uh, hydrogen atoms and electrons that were in the hydrogen atoms, a lot of the theory started to break down and quantum stuff is kind of the the mathematical theory that was built up from the 1900s onwards to explain what happens at the tiniest and the coldest or even the really warm high energy or low energy parts of the world. So stars or uh, superconductors, they're on extreme ends and both of them require quantum to understand. Well, let's maybe start uh, with stars, uh, Promo, because you do a lot of work in helium. Uh, and when we're talking gases, you know, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, you know, they get a lot of love. Helium, even though it's number two, it's right up there, doesn't seem to get a lot of respect. Uh, maybe tell us a little bit about uh, helium and why it is so special. Yeah, helium is is my favorite substance of all time. I only learned about it really two years ago, but it kind of just captured me on a level that nothing has. Sorry, did you just learn that helium existed two years ago? Or <laughs> Yeah, I was like, what is that stuff in balloons? No one would tell me what it was. And then, yeah, two years ago, all clicked. But yeah, I mean... You know, okay, helium as we know it in balloons and, um, well, where else do we know it from? It's I think it's in MRI machines. It uh, makes stuff cold is the other technological aspect other than balloons. But what really captured me was looking at helium when it's no longer a gas. Normal states of matter, you have liquid, gas, solid. And if you think about pretty much any element on Earth, if you make it hot enough, it turns into a gas. If you bring it colder, it turns into a liquid. And then you make it even colder, eventually it turns into a solid. Now, all of the elements do this except helium. So helium, gas at normal room temperatures, you cool it down, you cool it down, you cool it down, stays a gas until you reach about 2.7 Kelvins, which is about negative 270 degrees Celsius. And then it turns into a liquid. And then you're like, okay, that took a lot of effort to get into a liquid stage. But maybe if we keep cooling it down, it'll turn into a solid. But it does not. You can go all the way to absolute zero, and it turns out helium does not turn into a solid. And the only explanation for that is quantum. <laughs> classic. <laughs> Class, actually, the opposite of quantum is classic, and it is definitely not classic. <laughs> it is the very, very opposite, and it, it, you know, it does so many weird things, and not turning into a Solid is probably the least weird thing it does. The next most exciting thing that people know it for is if you keep cooling down, it turns into a thing called a superfluid. And uh, that's what I study. And I could tell you what a superfluid is if you want me to. Um, yes, please. Tell me what a superfluid is. Is it this beer I'm drinking? So we can explain it using your beer. So imagine that beer that you have in front of you. Grab a spoon, you pop it in there, and you give it a swirl. It's going to form not quite a whirlpool, but it's going to create this little vortex in there. And if you wait like three seconds, that's going to stop and it's going to settle and it'll become a flat, normal, drinkable beer again. If you did that with superfluid helium, you'd see something very different. So you'd put the spoon in, you'd give it a swirl, you take the spoon out and then a whirlpool forms. Great. And then you wait 10 minutes, there'll still be a whirlpool. You wait an hour, there'll still be a whirlpool. You wait a hundred years, there will still be a whirlpool. Wow. Superfluid helium is a frictionless liquid. It has absolutely no friction. It has no viscosity. So if you imagine honey as being a very thick, viscous substance, 
water is less viscous than that. And then superfluid helium is on the exact opposite spectrum. It has zero viscosity. So it is truly that an object in motion stays in motion. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like Newton's dream if friction and and like resistance did not exist. So what exactly could we use this superfluid helium for? So, you know... (sighs) When you go into theoretical physics, it's kind of hard to look into what can we use it for. We're just looking at things because they're so darn interesting. But one thing that we could use it for is is actually related to a big kind of buzzwordy, a lot of, a lot of money being poured into it right now in Silicon Valley, which is building a quantum computer. Brief intro into what a quantum computer is. Normal classical computers, the stuff that we're using to record right now, the stuff that the little computer that that's running Zoom right now. Um, runs on zeros and ones. That's kind of like a switch being turned on and turned off. A quantum computer has that, but also has these weird intermediate states where the things that make it up can both be a zero and a one at the same time. And it uses quantum mechanics to do that. And it turns out for not very obvious reasons, this is very useful and can, in some situations, make uh, the computer solve problems really, really fast. So it it can be used for that. It can be used for breaking cryptographic stuff. A lot of the ways that we transfer information over the internet is we we get a big prime number, like 200-digit prime number, and then we multiply it with another 200-digit prime number. And it's hard to figure out what the original two prime numbers are from the, the multiplied number. So that's the only way we can break that we encrypt information. Turns out, If we had a quantum computer, we could do that in seconds. So quantum computer is good for many reasons. It can solve problems much faster than we're used to. And also it can bring about a new age of this quantum cryptography. So there's a lot of money being poured into that right now and trying to figure out what is the best way to build a quantum computer. And there are many different ways to do it. One of them involves superfluid helium, basically floating electrons on top of the surface of the helium. And then you kind of poke the electron and depending on the state the electron's in, it's either a zero or a one or it's somewhere in between. And uh, that could be electrons floating on helium could be the basis of a quantum computer coming to a place near you. So if we go back for a minute to helium, how was helium discovered? Yeah. So there's an amazing story uh, about the origin of the the helium gas. So people pointed their telescopes at the sun and figured out that, okay, the the, the sun was full of this mystery element known as helium, uh, but they had never really seen it on earth other than trace amounts of it in some sort of rock that you can really, you know, get a lot out of it. So in, I think it was like 1903 in a town in Kansas called Dexter, they, they found this gas well. And this is a time where natural gas was a way to, you know, economic freedom. You could, you could make a lot of money in a very short amount of time if you found a natural gas well in, in Kansas. And so the, in this town, they found a well. And so the mayor gathered all these people together and they decided that they were going to have a big old party to declare this gas well open to inaugurate their new economic future. And the mayor gave his speech, and then he was going to give this grand unveiling by lighting a hay bale on fire and then pushing it towards the gas well and then seeing it erupt in flame. And so they did that. They set it on fire, and they like slowly pushed it towards the gas well. It hit the gas well, and then it abruptly went out. And then everyone's like, oh, what? That, that, that wasn't supposed to happen. And so they tried like two, more, two times, three times. 
each time it hits a gas well, it hits this outflow of gas and nothing, nothing would light on fire. So everyone's hopes were dashed, but there was a scientist, I, I can't remember, I think at the University of Kansas nearby, he was like, oh, okay. I mean, it sucks that we can't get rich off the gas coming out of that, but why did it not light on fire? So he went back to the lab, took a sample of the gas and found out that it was mostly nitrogen. It wasn't this the, the carbon-based stuff that would light on fire, but it was mostly nitrogen. But something like one or 2% was this completely unknown element. Uh, well, unknown to that time in gases form, it was helium. So that was the first time they found helium and they didn't actually you know, make a huge deal out of it because they didn't really realize what you could do with it. But then World War II came around and then they were like, ooh, that Hindenburg thing, that was, it was good while it was in the air. And then it kind of sucked when it like blew up on <laughs> and, you know, caught fire and stuff. And they were like, ooh, what about this helium thing? And helium, lighter than air, but also does not combust. And that's when this big boom for helium came about. Yeah. And that, I think that was, you know, the origin story of helium. Its scientific use only came by much, much later when um, they discovered that you could use it for cooling a lot of different things, um, for basically building a fridge that instead of going down to what, negative 20, negative 30 at most in your normal fridges, you could go down minus 250 something degrees. And if it goes down to minus 270 3.1 something, then it's going to be a mix of helium-4 and helium-3, which are two very, very different things. What is the difference? What's happening? Wow. <laughs> it's almost like I prompted that question. <laughs> yeah. Whoa. What an unexpected <laughs> question. <laughs> Left field. Um, so helium-3, helium-4 are just isotopes of helium. So, you know, helium, like Michael said, is the second thing on the periodic table because it has two protons, but you could also have many neutrons in there. And it doesn't really change the element, but it does make the nucleus heavier. And the most common element, most of helium on Earth, is this thing called helium-4, which has two protons plus two neutrons. So two plus two makes four. So very unsurprisingly, they named it helium-4. And that, that was the thing that was mostly abundant um, naturally. It was like 0. 0.00. 1% was helium-3, which had two protons and one neutron. And they didn't, like, nobody really had vast quantities of it, so they didn't really do much with it. But as they made nuclear weapons, helium-3 was turned out to be a byproduct of that. And then they got hold of that stuff and figured out, okay, it behaves mostly like normal helium until you cool it down to very, very, very low temperatures. They behave like a completely different animal. And then like swirls for days. Yeah, it, it swirls. So both helium-4 and helium-3 swirl for days, but they swirl in extremely different ways. And that's that's actually what I study. I study how, what is the difference between kind of the superfluid that helium-4 makes versus the superfluid that helium-3 makes. That brings up um, a question I've seen you know occasional things come up on on my science feed um that may be alarmist i don't know that are saying that the world is running out of helium could you maybe is this like are we running out of a particular kind of helium and what would happen if we did run out of helium yeah so we are in a sense running out of helium because it's a non-renewable resource right so helium gets out into the world and it is lighter than air which is precisely the first use people found for it so what it does it just 
rises and keeps on rising and keeps on rising and then escapes out into space. And we're never getting that helium back. So we are running out of helium. Why is that concerning? It's because a lot of our technology needs cooling. So MRI machines, they need helium. A lot of the scientific equipment that people use requires helium for cooling. The the scientific study of helium itself actually doesn't use a lot of helium, but apparently the balloon industry coupled with the MRIs are making us run out of helium. And they have in recent times found some new wells. I think there are some new wells in like Tanzania and a few other countries are getting into it. So maybe it's not as dire as people think. And I think actually in in my backyard, Alberta, Alberta is opening up um, some helium plant within the next year or something. So maybe we won't run out of it in the in the near future, but it is something that we probably shouldn't be <laughs> doing theses thesis defenses with or just filling up you know thousands and thousands of balloons you know just for fun just to kind of like have in our house yeah it's weird that we still allow i I don't understand i think it's just because we we just normalize that and then we're like yeah helium is for balloons without really realizing that's a thing that (laughs) will run out someday and is very important for other things non-balloon related reasons so okay so we've talked a little bit about helium we've talked about how it's super cool we've talked about how helium 3 and helium 4 even though they're like real close together they're not the same thing and they swirl for days but like differently (laughs) am i getting a phd in physics hard to say that's going to be the last line of my thesis they just swirl differently but you also you also are doing a lot of science communication and that's actually how i know you because we're both on this organizing committee for comscicon canada and one of the very cool science communication things you did was this dance your PhD superconductivity, the musical. What is it about electron behavior that could be like a dance? Yeah, so it's funny. Um, it, it a lot of it translates really well, which is astounding. It wasn't me kind of forcing. Uh, I was like, you must dance uh, electrons. It was like, oh no, <laughs> it's like the electrons are dancing. So why not actually put them into? A human form. So my master's thesis was in a slightly related, but not completely the same. I wasn't studying helium at the time. I was looking at superconductors and I was actually looking at superconductors for use in quantum computing. And yeah, so they they use superconductors as the basis for their quantum computer. And what a superconductor is, is just pretty much a normal metal, aluminum. Aluminum is actually a superconductor, but only under very specific circumstances. Only if you cool it below a very certain temperature, I think it's like four Kelvin, which is negative 269 degrees. And what happens in the aluminum is aluminum is normally full of just electrons kind of marching in a straight line to bring you electricity into your devices. Well, I don't know if aluminum is actually used in wires, but if it were, that's what it would what would happen. You have lone electrons who are going do 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 and they're traveling down this aluminum wire. And then if you cool it down, something really strange happens, which is the electrons earlier, they were just walking down single file in this in this wire to get to their destination. But suddenly, if you cool it down, they start to notice each other and they start interacting. And it is like a dance. It's like the DJ turned the music on. The electrons immediately just pair up into a thing called a Cooper pair and they kind of swirl about and they move as one unit. So you, instead of lone electrons moving up and down the wire, you have now only pairs of electrons. And actually, exact same phenomenon as superfluid helium doing swirly things, you have infinite swirly 
pairs of electrons going down this wire. What I'm learning is that physics is just infinite swirly things. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is. It's, uh, what is it? The wave-particle duality is just, it's just waves. Promote, that's know? exactly just what I said. Wave-particle duality. That's <laughs> exactly it. So if you were to cool it even further, would those pairs pair up again? Like, do you, do you get larger and larger clusters of electrons? That's a really interesting question, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So something like that does happen. So what happens as you cool it down further and further is more and more of the electrons actually pair up. So if you're at negative four degrees Kelvin versus two degrees Kelvin, it just means a larger proportion of the electrons have now paired up, but they are also pairing up closer and closer. Um, so the distance between the pairs goes down. And so there is an interesting bit of physics there where it's called Bose-Einstein condensation when the electron pairs pretty much are touching. They're as close as they'll ever get, quantum mechanically speaking. So there's superconductivity and then there's something called Bose-Einstein condensation, which are very related concepts, but they're related by cooling it further down. This kind of reminds me of dancing when you're in sets. My dad and I have done this uh, dancing in Nova Scotia and you you dance in a pair, but there's like four pairs. So you're still dancing in your pair, but you're like really close to the other pairs and you dance in these four sets of pairs. I mean, I guess it's a little, my analogy is breaking down because at some points you actually dance with other people, but you mostly stay in your pair. Forget my analogy. No, that's a, no, that's a great analogy. That's actually what happens in a, in a, in a metal because it's not all of them are dancing and sometimes you want to dance with someone else. So you swap out your partner for somebody else. That happens in a superconductor. So perfect analogy. All right. Well, let's get to some listener questions from the nerd herd. Why is the sky? What's at the center of a black hole? When we evolve, does anyone have free will? Why is like carbon the fastest thing on earth? Why do we keep pets? It's time for listener questions. All right. We'll first start off with a question from Farah, who wants to know, what are some of the big questions in quantum mechanics? Quantum physics is, you know, it's different from condensed matter. There are a lot of questions in particle physics and, you know, condensed matter, but quantum kind of encompasses both. So let me let me get into a historical digression here. You know, quantum mechanics started early 1900s with, you know, helium, hydrogen. They looked at electrons going on there. And the the lesson as, as they develop quantum mechanics, physicists kind of developed kind of a culture instead of, you know, purely following the math. The philosophy behind it kind of gathered around this idea of reductionism, which is basically saying, hey, if I want to understand anything, I want to take it apart. I got to see what is the smallest thing that I can break it down into. And that kind of became the philosophy of quantum mechanics and modern physics from 1900s all the way up to like 10 years ago, where people were like, I'm going to get my particle smasher. I'm going to smash things and see the small things that come out. And it was super successful, which is great, but ended up with a lot of different particles that people didn't expect. They were like, we're going to find one explanation for everything. We're going to find a string. String theory, you may have heard of it. People expected everything was, at the end of the day, made of little loops of strings that kind of vibrated in the universe. It's like a cat's paradise. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately for the cat, that has not panned out. Uh, so the last 20-something years, 30-something years of physics has been trying to find the elusive strings that permeate everything or trying to find some other things called supersymmetry or some sort of exotic physics, and it's kind of failed, unfortunately. So the paradigm is kind of shifting in physics, where people are like, ooh, that reductionism thing, it's not kind of working out for us. While condensed matter physics from like the 1940s to now have just been like, yeah, we don't want to break things down into their smallest parts. 
we're going to actually look at when we have a lot of atoms and electrons just kind of hanging out together, what are the things that emerge out of that? So we're not breaking down things into one part. We're looking at a collective and then seeing what can we understand from that collective. And really, that has kind of become the guiding philosophy in the last few years. So people are trying to figure out when we get a collective of things, what are the emergent properties of that? Um, much like if you have birds in the sky, if you look at one bird, you won't be able to tell all the amazing shapes that a whole flock of them can make. So there are these undulating shapes that starlings, when they flock together, they make. And you can kind of think of that as an emergent animal, in a sense, that come out of many different birds interacting together and working together. Condensed matter physics kind of does the same thing. And then a lot of people are starting to think of emergence as the next big thing in quantum physics. Uh, next question comes from Alex, which is kind of a fun question. What is the opposite of theoretical condensed matter physics? I mean, if we if we break it down, uh, let's let's take the reductionist approach. Let's break it down in its into individual components. So theoretical is experimental, condensed is let's say diffuse, condensed matter, matter. Well, physics. What's the opposite of physics? Antimatter. Antimatter. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So experimental, diffuse, antimatter is I guess the the literal answer to that question. And one more question is from Richard who asks, I remember reading a few years ago about metallic hydrogen being the next miracle material, a superconductor, a rocket fuel. What happened to those ideas? Yeah, super interesting idea. To be honest, you know, not the area of physics I look at, but I do remember the story and the story surrounding it because the discovery of superconducting metallic hydrogen happened, I think, in 2017. And I remember the story because it turned out that the, the postdoc who put that experiment together was from Sri Lanka and went to the same university as my dad. And I was like, oh, my God, another Sri Lankan physicist doing kind of similar things to what I'm doing. And I became really excited. So that's the only reason I really know about this. But to answer the actual question here is I think reality isn't as simple as you find something that is a super material and it does a really great thing that would be really useful to us. For example, take superconductors. It'd be amazing if we had superconductors everywhere and we use them to transport our electricity from power stations to our homes, because then we wouldn't lose any of the electricity, which is a major concern. We lose a lot of electricity in the power lines getting to us. But if we were to build superconducting power lines all the way to our homes, we'd need to keep it at negative 260 degrees Celsius, and you'd probably end up consuming more electricity than you would save in a superconductor. It's a similar reason why metallic hydrogen didn't actually end up being the wonder material or whatever it was purported to be, is because to get metallic hydrogen, it took a lot of effort. They had to make a diamond anvil and they made a tiny, basically you can see it with your eye, such a tiny piece of hydrogen. They had to squeeze it with this diamond anvil to just ridiculous pressures. And they had to cool it down to ridiculously low temperatures. And that's the only time they saw metallic hydrogen. And it was for like an hour. And then it just exploded. And they never saw metallic hydrogen again. So in the entirety of history, we've seen metallic hydrogen for like 10 minutes after like squeezing as hard as humanly possible and like making things as cold as humanly possible. So if you have to go to that effort to make a wonder material that can solve all of the problems on Earth, it's, it's kind of easy to imagine why it didn't become as popular as it should have. I think there might actually be metallic hydrogen at the core of Jupiter. I'm, I may be wrong about that, but I think 
that they're down inside in the middle of Jupiter. I think there's some metallic hydrogen. I, and yeah, and that makes sense, right? So if we think of high pressures, what higher pressure than the center of the largest planet in our solar system? All right. Well, this has been uh, an amazing nerd time. Should we nerd out even more? Bring on those nerd outs. What you nerding about? What you nerding about? All right, Promote, what have you been nerding out about recently? So I'm going to do two quick ones. Please forgive me. So one thing I discovered last week was there's this program uh, online called Oscilloscope Music, which basically takes any 3D model that you want on your computer and you like feed it into this machine and it pops out. One, it converts this model into sound. So you can hear what your 3D model of, I don't know, someone's face looks like. Oh, or sounds like, but it also converts it into this like vaporwave oscilloscope green matrix-like structure. So I've been playing around with that, trying to figure out how can I make music out of 3D modeling. And so I'm very excited to play around with this more. And the second one, also kind of about music. I've been going on YouTube rabbit holes that just lead me to finding weird things. But I was watching some videos of physicists and Nobel Prize winners, and I discovered a lot of them play music, like play instruments. So I've been going on YouTube, finding clips of Nobel Prize winners in physics and fields medalists playing their instruments, and I want to create a band out of all the clips that they make. So I've been slowly over the last week, I have like five or six different people playing piano and tabla, and I'm going to try and put them together and make a band out of them. So stay tuned. That sounds amazing. Uh, Michael, if you were to create a sound off of a 3D structure, what 3D structure would you put into this machine? Can I say like the sound of the enterprise? It just sounds like make it so. That's it. That's the only thing it sounds like. So Michael, what have you been nerding about? Uh, As a previous guest, Joanna Wagstaff introduced us in her nerd out about the show Devs which I delved into in holy smokes. This is my favorite show of the year. Speaking of supercomputers, now I can't tell you what the show is about because the whole premise of the show is that they are developing, which is devs, they're developing something that is secret and is going to basically change the world. Now, what I can tell you is like the overarching and I can't really tell, talk about the themes either, even though they're so cool to talk about. Because once you find out what devs is, then it dives you into this rabbit hole of humans and our perception of the universe. But what is quite interesting is thinking of this new kind of supervillain. Like, I'm, you know, when science was first discovering these things like helium and nuclear physics, you know, there was this arch villain of the mad scientist, where now... It's more like the mad developer because now we're moving into this realm where it's a different kind of villain. And not not to say that uh, the character that Nick Offerman plays is a villain in the show, but he is perhaps someone that is not really thinking about morality in the way that most humans are. Kind of the way that mad scientists are like they're thinking about you know, that next leap in science, but they're not quite thinking of the morality and if we should do this. I wonder if we'll see more of that kind of uh, supervillain in stories or even just we can see them in in the world right now doing these things and we don't know what they're developing and it could destroy us all. I got real dark real fast. <laughs> Zero to 100. Also, the thought of Nick Offerman being a supervillain. I, I I now really want to check it out now. He does. He has that whole sort of like disheveled, like I don't dress myself kind of 
vibe that most CEOs of tech companies kind of have. Um, Kaylee, what are you nerding about? So I've been thinking a lot recently about science communication, and that's partly Promote and I are both working on organizing ComSciCon CAN, which is a, a science communication workshop for graduate students. And by the time this airs, it will have already happened this year. But if you're a graduate student interested in science communication training, you should check it out for next year. And it's been making me think about how I like to consume science. Like I generally like my science communication to sort of be fun and interactive. Here in Vancouver, there's a new podcast called Science Telephone, and I love the idea of it. The basic idea is you tell your science to a stand-up comedian, and then they tell that science that they've got from you to another stand-up comedian, and then they pass it down the line, and then it comes back to you, and you see how it sort of went through the process. And it's a really fun way to look at science and the idea of what happens when you communicate poorly and, and how it gets sort of transcribed. So that's one that I've, I think is a really cool idea. And if you haven't listened to Science Telephone, check it out. I hope to hear promote on it at some point. Another one that I've been really nerding out about lately is uh, RCI Science. So uh, RCI Science is a really cool platform where um, they have these weekly takeovers where scientists will come on and they'll share their science for a week. And right now, Farah Kweiser is doing the science takeover there. And it's been really fun watching because it, it's covering not only DNA and what DNA is, but it's also talking about science policy and diversity in STEM. And so these two very different approaches, but really engaging. So if you also don't already follow RCI Science, that's another really cool platform for you to check out to meet a lot of different scientists. Amazing. Uh, Promote, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, where can people find you if they want to uh, contact you, ask you more questions on the internet? Thank you so much. I oh, had a blast. This is great. I love talking about helium. And I'd love to talk more about helium on Twitter, actually. So Twitter is where I do most of my science communication. Kind of do it on Instagram as well, but at Promote Yapa. Yeah, ask me things. I would love to talk your ear off or via 280 characters. And we obviously already follow Promode. And if you like this podcast and you want to hear more from us, you can follow us at NerdNightYVR on Instagram, Twitter, and on Facebook. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks. But until next time, make like Helium 4 and stay super cool. Cool.